You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On June 8, 1924, British mountaineer George Mallory, along with his young partner Andrew Irvine, made a daring attempt to reach the summit of the tallest place on Earth, Mount Everest. Later that day, another member of the climbing team, Noel Dell, from his vantage point at about 26,000 feet, believed that he spotted the two men, dots on the mountainside as they moved upwards. It would be the last known sighting of Mallory and Irvine, who would never return from the climb, and thus the two men would fade into history, brave adventurers claimed by the Himalayas. The fates of the climbers was debated for decades until 1999, 75 years after their attempt on the summit of Everest, when a body was discovered on the slopes of the Great Mountain. That body was George Mallory's. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we start a new series, this one on British mountaineer George Mallory, who would be part of three pioneering expeditions to Everest from 1921 through 1924. Some notes to start. First, I want to mention the Patreon program for the Explorers podcast. This program allows people like you to support the show financially by becoming a patron of the show. Patrons gain access to things such as exclusive mini-episodes, podcast Q&As, and ad-free episodes. I want to especially thank those who have joined the program at the Trailblazer tier. This includes Philip, John Paul, Eileen, and Chris. To them and all of our patrons, thank you so much for your support. If you are interested in becoming a patron of the show, go to our website, explorerspodcast.com, for more information. Second, these next few episodes will be about mountaineering. It is not something I'm particularly well-versed in, so I apologize if I mess up unrelated terminology. Also, with that in mind, please know that I will try and tell this story at a basic level, one in which everyone, even non-climbers, can understand and enjoy. Third, I want to mention that, because these events happened only about 100 years ago, there is a lot of information about Mallory and these Everest expeditions available, including books, films, and photos. I've posted some images on the website, as well as links to other resources. It's not a bad thing to take a look at some of these if you get a chance. It will give you a bit of a feel for what Mallory and his comrades were facing. So that is it for notes. Let's get on with our story, George Mallory and the Assault on Everest. We will begin today by talking a bit about George Mallory. George Herbert Lee Mallory was born on June 18, 1886, in Cheshire, England. He was the son of Herbert Lee Mallory, a clergyman, and Annie Barrage. He had two sisters and a brother. Mallory was remembered as a smart, active, and adventurous boy, the kind of kid who never hesitated to climb a tree or a roof on a dare. 
At the age of 13, he won a mathematics scholarship to Winchester College. Winchester, by the way, is a boarding school for boys ages 13 to 18, not a university-level college. Anyhow, in his final year at Winchester, he was introduced to climbing when he was able to go on a trip to the Alps. Mallory fell in love with it. It was a passion he would continue to develop, even as he moved on to Magdalen College in Cambridge, where he studied history and the classics, and he showed interest in politics. Mallory would grow into a tall, athletic young man. He rode well in college, and his friends called him Galahad, because of his chivalrous and daring nature. But it was climbing that was his foremost passion. He climbed in England, Wales, and the Alps, always looking for challenges and always honing his skills. Now, before we go on about Mallory, let us talk a bit about mountaineering. Climbing mountains has been done by humans for thousands of years. People did it for practical reasons, such as finding a way through a mountain range, or to locate grazing land for their animals, or to search for minerals such as gold and iron and silver. Others did it for religious or symbolic reasons. The truth is, reaching the top of a peak was, and still is, often a personal quest, an inner desire to conquer some obstacle that looms before a person. Mallory would say this about the challenge of climbing, quote, One must conquer, achieve, get to the top. One must know the end to be convinced that one can win the end, to know that there's no dream that mustn't be dared, end quote. By the 1800s, the idea of climbing mountains for fun and adventure and recognition came into vogue, and people began to see it as a sport. In 1857, the Alpine Club was formed in England. It was a club of English gentlemen devoted to mountaineering, at first focusing on the Alps. Thus, climbing was, for a time, seen as a sport or activity of the well-to-do. But this gradually changed, and climbing and mountaineering began to gain popularity amongst people of all ages and classes, and genders as well as nationalities. Also, as the 1800s gave way to the 1900s, there was a shift in the world's view of exploration. Finding the unknown gave way to achieving what had not been achieved. Being the first person to the North Pole or the South Pole, for instance, was not the kind of thing that led to discovering new worlds or finding trade routes to a far-off land. Instead, it was often about the glory and recognition of the accomplishment, as well as personal satisfaction. And that became very true for mountaineering. People began to take note of what mountains had been climbed and which had not. Thus, by the early 1900s, many of the world's most recognizable mountains had been climbed. The Matterhorn in the Alps in 1865, Kenya's Mount Kilimanjaro in 1889, Aconcagua in the Andes in 1897, Denali in Alaska in 1913. You get the idea. But they all paled before the great mountains of Central Asia, in particular the Himalayas. But that's jumping ahead in our narrative. Let's get back to young George Mallory. So after college, Mallory became a schoolteacher at Charterhouse, a public school in Surrey. He was a great believer in teaching and education. He saw it as a noble and good profession. Many of his friends and colleagues, however, thought he was destined for bigger things. No matter, the one thing that Mallory would continue to do was climb. It was his great passion. He joined the Alpine Club and would go to Europe to climb the Alps whenever he could, even summoning Mont Blanc in 1911, the highest of the Alps at nearly 16,000 feet. At home, he would climb an English lake district, a mountainous region in the northwest of the country. There were lots of peaks there, ranging from between 2,500 and 3,000 feet in height. While not particularly high, they could be very challenging. In 1913, Mallory climbed a pillar rock with no assistance by what is now known as Mallory's Route. It is considered one of the most difficult climbs in Great Britain. All this would make Mallory a minor celebrity in the climbing world at this time. 
By the way, one thing I want to note is that by the 1900s, you would have seen the standardization of climbing strategies and tactics and gear as the sport gained popularity throughout the world. But know that the gear in particular was crude compared to what is available today. I also want to point out that what Mallory and his contemporaries were doing is called alpine climbing. This is what many would call a more pure form of climbing. A person carries all their own gear and doesn't use oxygen, making them quick and nimble. This sort of climbing works best when your objectives are not that high, say no more than 15 or 16,000 feet, and you are close to civilization. This is what Mallory would have done up to this point in his life. However, there is another type of climbing called expedition style, which is required when attempting to climb higher mountains and or you are far from civilization. We will discuss this type of climbing a bit later. Anyhow, 28-year-old George Malley would get married in 1914 to Ruth Turner, just six days before the start of World War I. Mallory would try to enlist in the service, but his job as a schoolmaster was considered a reserved occupation, meaning he was essential to the workforce. Mallory would not be released from his duties until 1915, after the headmaster of the school found a replacement for him. He would receive a commission as an artillery officer and be shipped to the front, seeing action in the 1916 Somme Offensive, which saw more than a million casualties, making it one of the bloodiest in all of history. Unlike so many of his comrades, Mallory would survive the war and return home to his family, which had been steadily growing. His wife gave birth to a girl, Frances, in 1950, and another girl in 1917, Berridge, who was called Barry. In 1920, a son, John, would be born. Mallory would return to his position as a teacher at Charterhouse, but the war had changed him, like so many others who had survived the horrors of the trenches. He was restless and bored, and looking for a greater purpose in life. He was keenly interested in international politics and inquired about working with the new League of Nations. And then in 1921, a unique opportunity would present itself to the 35-year-old Mallory. After the war, the British government would have the desire to survey the Himalayan mountains for military and strategic reasons. Remember, the British ruled India at this time, and the unknown regions to the north were of interest to them. The big problem was access. The Kingdom of Nepal, fearing being sucked up by their powerful neighbors, barred foreigners from their lands, and for a long time, Tibet had the same policy. However, the British would gradually make diplomatic inroads with the Tibetan government, as well as their influential religious leader, the Dalai Lama, and eventually be given permission to conduct their surveys of the Great Himalayas from the north side of the range. And that leads us to the 1921 British Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition. The goal of the expedition was to figure out how to even get near to Mount Everest, then seek out possible routes for climbing the mountain, and finally, if possible, make the first ascent of the highest mountain in the world. But before we jump into the expedition, let's talk about the real subject of our podcast, Mount Everest. Mount Everest is part of the Himalayas, the mountain range in Asia separating the plains of the Indian subcontinent from the Tibetan Plateau. Everest was, at this time, recognized as the tallest mountain in the world. It was just over 29,000 feet in height, and the Tibet-Nepal border ran along its summit. The range stretches all the way along the northern borders of India, Nepal, and Bhutan, and into Tibet, Pakistan, and China. In the Himalayas, there are more than 50 mountains over 23,600 feet tall. That's taller than any mountain outside of Asia. Now, some history about Everest. The mountain, by the way, was not always recognized as the world's highest. A big reason for this was that it was difficult to actually get a good look at Everest and many of the neighboring peaks. And that's because the Himalayas are often choked with clouds. You just can't get a clearer view from them from far away, and you need to get close to make accurate observations, sort of to get within the weather system. 
Coupled with a lack of access to the area by the Nepalese and Tibetan authorities, it made parts of the Himalayas a mystery. So, by the mid-1800s, the general belief was that Kanchenjunga, which is to the east of Everest, was the tallest mountain in the world. At a little over 28,000 feet high, it is actually the third. But in 1849, a survey from a distance of over 100 miles away hinted that Everest, designated Peak 15 at the time, was actually taller than Kanchenjunga. But due to the distance and other factors, getting an exact height was impossible. It wasn't until 1852 when Radhanath Sikdar, an Indian mathematician and surveyor from Bengal, determined that Peak 15 was the tallest mountain in the world. Exactly how tall was up for debate. That would finally be settled in 1856 when Andrew Waugh, the British Surveyor General of India, gathered all the data and calculated Peak 15's height. Waugh concluded that Peak 15 was, quote, most probably the highest mountain in the world, end quote. The actual calculations put the newly crowned champion of mountains at exactly 29,000 feet. But Wa added two feet to the calculation to avoid the impression that the number was a rounded estimate. This would lead to a joke that Wa was the first person to put two feet on top of Mount Everest. So now that Peak 15 was the tallest in the world, it needed a proper name. It was custom to keep the local names of these peaks, but Wa decided to name it after his predecessor, Sir George Everest. Wa said he did this because the mountain had several names, and no single one was dominant. In Nepali, it was called Sagamatha. In Tibetan, Chamulungma. In Chinese, Jumulangma. No matter, it would be Everest that would stick. And thus, with a newly minted, tallest-in-the-world crown, Everest would become a target for climbers. After all, who doesn't want to be the first person to climb the world's highest peak? And people would soon begin talking about making an ascent. However, with Tibet and Nepal keeping out foreigners, no serious attempt would be organized until 1921. Although I do want to note that in 1913, British Captain John Noel tried to reach Everest without permission, sneaking into the region via an unguarded mountain pass with a small party. He got about 50 miles from Everest before being detected and forced to turn back. Anyhow, that takes us to January 1921, when the Alpine Club and the Royal Geographical Society established the Mount Everest Committee, to coordinate and fund an expedition. As we mentioned earlier, the main focus of this endeavor was to explore a way to actually reach Everest and then identify a potential route to the summit. Now, if an opportunity to climb to the top of Everest emerged, well, no one was going to argue. But again, the primary purpose of the expedition was reconnaissance, hence the British Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition moniker. For a leader, the club wanted General Charles Bruce, a 55-year-old veteran of climbing in the Himalayas, Bruce was a robust, exuberant, and good-humored man who had been severely wounded at Gallipoli in World War I. However, Bruce's participation would be limited due to military obligations, and thus leadership of the expedition would fall to Charles Howard Burry, a 40-year-old soldier, explorer, climber, and botanist. Like most men in the expedition, Howard Burry was a veteran of the Great War. As a note, Charles Bruce will be important in our later episodes, which is why I wanted to introduce him here. The rest of the team was led by Himalayan veterans Harold Rayburn, who was designated the climbing leader, and Alexander Kellis. Both men were experienced climbers, but at 56 and 53, they were aging. Thus, the committee wanted some younger climbers. One issue was that there was a dearth of such men. A generation of young British men had been claimed by the war. Some were dead, some were crippled, and others had simply not had the opportunity to be introduced to climbing due to the war. Anyhow, as the committee discussed who to include in the expedition, the name of Mallory came up. He was 34 years old at the time and generally regarded as one of the most accomplished alpine climbers in the world. To those who knew him, he was the best man on a mountain. 
His friend and colleague, E.F. Norton, said this of Mallory, quote, We always regarded him as the ideal mountaineer, light, limber, and active, end quote. But Mallory also possessed something extra, something special. He had a focus and a passion that pushed him to succeed. Norton would add this of his friend, quote, The fire within him is what made him really great, end quote. And thus, in February, despite no Himalayan experience, Mallory would be invited to join the upcoming expedition to Everest. He would debate his participation with his wife, but she ultimately urged him to accept, which he would do. In addition to Mallory, the committee wanted to bring on board George Finch, a 32-year-old climber and chemist. If anyone could rival Mallory as an alpine climber, it was Finch. Also, the man was one of the world's foremost experts at using oxygen at higher altitudes. However, Finch would ultimately have to drop out but I wanted to mention him because he will be important in our next episode. In Finch's place, Mallory would suggest Guy Bullock, a diplomat and an old climbing friend. He did not have Himalayan experience, but Mallory knew and trusted the man. The committee would accept the recommendation, and Bullock would be added to the expedition's roster. The additions of Mallory and Bullock would give the team four climbers. By the way, there was some discussion of engaging some other climbers who weren't British, but that was ultimately rejected. The committee decided that it would be an all-British affair. The expedition would also bring along a naturalist-slash-doctor, Sandy Wollaston, a geologist, Andrew Heron, and a pair of surveyors, Henry Morshead and Oliver Wheeler. So, from the staff, you can see this would be more than just a climb. Remember, no European had ever gotten within 50 or so miles of Everest. So they not only needed to scout out the area to see how the mountain could be climbed, but they wanted to get a lay of the entire region, and understand the weather, the flora, and the fauna. And let's remember, high-altitude mountain climbing was not common. Few men had ever ventured past the 20,000-foot mark. The expedition wanted to know how the altitude would affect the climbers, how they should acclimate, that sort of stuff. Now, the expedition would also have a vast number of porters and guides and tons of gear. This is expedition-style climbing, and we mentioned it earlier. It was not just a handful of climbers who went up a mountain on their own. It's a larger group, which means you move slower, setting up camps at logical intervals as you go. This is necessary when heading into remote areas, which is exactly what the Himalayas were. So, for George Mallory, this would be an incredible opportunity. The thought of climbing Everest enthralled him, and it would become an obsession. He departed from England in early April, converging with the other members of the expeditions in Darjeeling, India, in May 1921. Darjeeling is located in the Himalayan foothills, right between Bhutan and Nepal. The plan was to march north through the region of Sikkim to where India bordered Tibet. Once in Tibet, the expedition would go west and approach Everest from the north side. Their destination was approximately 300 miles away. Again, it is important to remember that Nepal was off limits to foreigners, so approaching from the north, from Tibet, was their only real option. From the start, Mallory would have some misgivings about the expedition, in particular its makeup. He found the team's leader, Charles Howard Burry, to be an inflexible snob who disliked anyone who had an alternate opinion or who was different from him. Mallory said he was, quote, not a tolerant person, end quote. But more than anything, Mallory was concerned about Kellis and Rayburn, and specifically their ages. He couldn't imagine either man climbing above 24 or 25,000 feet. But in the end, he set those doubts aside. The opportunity ahead might never present itself again. But make no mistake, despite his concerns about the makeup of the party, Mallory very much wanted to have a crack at Everest. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust 
into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The expedition would depart Darjeeling on May 18, 1921. There were 100 army mules loaded with gear and supplies and more than 40 porters, a majority of them Sherpas. The Sherpas, a Tibetan ethnic group who lived in the mountains, would quickly become known for their ability to operate at high altitudes and thus, to this day, are widely seen as the finest guides and porters in the Himalayas. The army mules, by the way, would later be replaced by yaks and hill mules. In addition, there would be other expedition members, guides and translators and assistant surveyors and cooks and so forth. The expedition would head across Sikkim and go through the Tista Valley and over the Jalapla mountain pass at an elevation of 14,000 feet and into Tibet. This route took them into the Chumbi Valley and onto the Tibetan Plateau. What followed was a series of small mountain towns as the expedition pushed west toward Everest. These towns are often called Zongs, which is really a style of architecture. They are fortresses and usually feature towering exterior walls surrounding courtyards, temples, and many other buildings. So on reaching Kambazong, about 100 miles from Everest, disaster would strike. Alexander Kellis had been sick for about a week. It was initially thought that he was suffering from an inflamed small intestine, but then he would die, the result of heart failure. Kellis's death was a great shock and loss. He was the expedition's most experienced climber, and he had done extensive studies of high-altitude physiology, making him one of the world's leaders in understanding altitude sickness. It was Kellis who had first recognized the superiority of the Sherpas as porters and guides. Also, he was well-liked by everyone in the party, including Mallory. He would be buried on a stony hillside overlooking the Tibetan plains in view of three Himalayan peaks that he had climbed. Now, if the death of Kellis wasn't enough, Harold Rayburn, the expedition's lead climber, would get sick with many of the same symptoms that Kellis had displayed. The decision was made to send him back to India to recover. And suddenly, George Mallory found himself as the de facto climbing leader of the expedition. It would have been daunting, but Mallory had immense confidence in himself, and he relished the role. The expedition followed the valley of the Rune River west and would soon get their first glimpses of their destination. However, Everest was often cloaked in banks of clouds. When the men finally did get a decent view of the mountain, Mallory would say, quote, It was a prodigious white fang excrescent from the jaw of the world. End quote. By the way, as you can tell, Mallory had a flair for the dramatic in his writing. And if you are wondering what the heck excrescent means, well, I had to look it up too. So I will save you the time and let you know that it means the forming of an abnormal projection or outgrowth, something like that. The expedition would push forward, and then, about 50 miles from Everest, Mallory and his comrades would finally get their first look at the breadth of what was before them, and it was stunning. Mallory would write of the moment when the summit of Everest came into view, saying, quote, Incredibly higher in the sky than imagination had ventured to dream, the top of Everest itself appeared. End quote. What he and his companions were seeing was the east face of the great mountain. By the way, Mallory never stopped being in awe of Everest and the entire Himalayan range. He wrote at length about the region's beauty and its ability to leave one awestruck. It's something you appreciate about Mallory. Yes, he loved climbing and the challenge of it, but he also loved and respected the places that he climbed. 
The mountain wasn't just an obstacle to overcome. It was something to experience, something to be part of. So onward the expedition went, despite losing two of its climbers. They would pass through several more mountain towns before reaching the fortress of Shagard Zong on June 17th. The expedition would then establish a base camp at the nearby village of Tingri, which was just a few days away from Everest. A large old Chinese rest house, filthy and falling apart and supposedly haunted, was given to the expedition to serve as their residence. One of the four courtyards was turned into a hospital, as several of the expedition's personnel were sick with typhoid. In fact, one of the porters would die, while second would need three weeks to recover before being sent back to India. So it had taken about a month, but the expedition had finally arrived in the vicinity of Mount Everest. It was, finally, time to get down to business. Now let's remember this was not just about climbing. Thus the surveyors and the geologists would go out surveying and exploring along with their assistants. The expedition's porters, when not engaged, would spread out throughout the region, collecting animal and plant specimens for Dr. Wollaston. And that would leave Mallory and Bullock to go out exploring. Their job was to identify a route to the summit of Everest, and just as important, a route to get to that route. I can't stress how important this latter item is to the story. You may think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. You walk up to the mountain and you find a way up. But you have to remember that there are mountains all around them, mountains that are 20 and 25,000 feet high. You need to negotiate these monsters, find ways through or over or around them to actually get to Everest. The local people can help to a degree, but even then, as you get to 20,000 feet and more, their knowledge was limited. Now, one thing I want to mention is that one of the primary strategies of climbers when trying to find a route up a mountain at these altitudes was to follow glacial flows. Now, as I am not a mountaineer, I may describe this incorrectly, but I think I have the gist of it. Glacial flows tend to follow the easiest way to lower roots. It's not much different than water. The flow hits a rock wall, moves along the wall until it finds a path down. Kind of simple. Over time, the flow will cut a wider and deeper path to lower altitudes. It breaks down walls, takes with it rock and earth, that sort of stuff. This makes for a natural path for a climber to go upward. Now, you may say, does a climber want to be traveling up a glacier? And the answer is yes. At high altitudes, it's generally easier to walk up an ice field than to try and move over exposed rock. Exposed rock is often loose and the surface uneven. Usually, you would rather walk on top of a bunch of ice than a field of boulders. Now, that doesn't mean that glaciers are a piece of cake. Hidden crevices can literally swallow a person, and in the mountains, it's not like all glacial flows are smooth fields of ice. Still, you get the idea that one of the things that an explorer will do is follow the flow of a glacier to find a route to higher altitudes. With that in mind, Mallory and Bullock would begin their reconnaissance by investigating the northeast approaches to Everest. The two climbers, along with 16 porters, a guide-slash-interpreter, and 15 yaks, headed down a long valley, reaching the Rongbuk Glacier. They would follow the glacier and ultimately march over a steep rise where they were brought to a halt. Mallory wrote, before them was, quote, a more glorious sight than I can attempt to describe, end quote. It was Mount Everest in all its glory. It was astounding and enormous and daunting in so many ways. From this vantage point, Mallory got a better understanding of the steep ridges and precipices that guarded the mountain. Some had speculated that there would be an easy snow slope up the mountain, well, that idea was forever banished. What was before Mallory was more imposing than he had ever imagined. It was here at the base of the Rongbuk Glacier, at an altitude of 16,500 feet, that they would set up their first base camp. By the way, their camp was not far from the Rongbuk Monastery, which still exists to this day. I recommend looking it up. 
or check out the link I put on our website. It's incredibly desolate looking, 16,000 plus feet, no vegetation. It was originally just some caves and small huts, but now there's a small cluster of whitewashed buildings with the axe wandering around. On July 5th, Mallory and Bullock would climb one of the neighboring peaks, Rai Ring, which was more than 22,000 feet high, in order to get a better view of Everest. Here, the two men studied the upper north face of Everest, as well as the north ridge above the north call, and judged the latter a feasible route to the top. Now, a note of explanation here. I just used the term north call, and I want to tell you a bit more about that, because it's important. A call, spelled C-O-L, is the lowest point between two adjacent mountains. Calls that can be crossed are often called passes, or gaps. In this case, the North Call is the spot where Everest meets its neighboring mountain, Changxi. And with that, Mallory believed that if the North Call could be reached, you could then follow the North Ridge of Everest to the summit. Ah, but getting to the North Call was not going to be simple. Mallory and Bullock would spend the next weeks working their way around the mountain, up glaciers, and even up other smaller peaks, hoping to figure out a way to reach the North Call. They crossed one area that Mallory described as something out of Alice in Wonderland. There were 50-foot-high ice columns, great crevices, and ice-covered lakes. By the way, one of the things Mallory and Bullock did during these explorations was to take photos of the places they went to. Well, for a bunch of these photos, Mallory would put the camera plates incorrectly, making all the images worthless. He would be forced to retrace many of his steps to retake the photos properly. And at one point, Mallory and Bullock wanted to see the mountain from the Nepal side. They made several approaches, but no route up Everest was sighted. By mid-July, the monsoon season was approaching, which meant storms and fresh snow. And it was here that it was decided that all their explorations up the Rongbuk Glacier and its side trails were not going to give them the answer that they needed. Thus, the expedition would break camp and move en masse to a place called the Carter region, further west, hoping that the Carter Chu River and Valley would reach up to the North Call. Once the camp was moved, the probing explorations continued. However, in August, Mallory would become ill, suffering from fevers and a sore and swollen throat. It would lay him up for a week. Another thing that the men were dealing with as they ventured higher and higher, especially over 20,000 feet, was altitude sickness. Now, it wasn't a big issue on this first expedition, but it was something the expedition was coming to terms with and learning more and more about. Altitude sickness, by the way, is caused by rapid exposure to low amounts of oxygen at high altitudes. There are different levels of the condition, with the more extreme symptoms emerging at greater heights. Typical symptoms include headaches, vomiting, fatigue, dizziness, lack of sleep, and confusion. It can be quite severe at extreme altitudes, even leading to death. Humans cannot survive for extended periods at levels above 20,000 feet. The effects of altitude sickness usually become apparent around 8 to 10,000 feet. The key is to take time to acclimate and let your body become accustomed to moving up and down at these higher altitudes. So Bullock and the others continued their explorations, but time was running out. At some point in September, the snow would get too heavy and they would have to pull back off the mountain. And then on August 18th, the expedition would have a big break. Mallory, back on his feet after his illness, along with Bullock, a porter named Naima, and the surveyor Moreshead, set off up the southern branch of the Carta Glacier. The snow was so deep they had to use snowshoes or they'd sink knee-deep into the white snow. At the end of the valley, they followed a call, a high gap as we noted, that separated the Carta Glacier from a different glacier. This call would be called Lakpala, which means windy gap. From here, at an altitude of over 22,000 feet, Mallory and his companions saw what they were looking for. 
There was a glacier, later identified as the East Rongbuk Glacier, that ran up to the North Col, the spot where they had spied a route to the top of Everest. Mallory and his companions were thrilled at the discovery. This was the path they were looking for. They would rejoin the rest of the party in the Cardo Valley, where they received a message from Wheeler, another of the surveyors, explaining that the glacier they had just seen actually flowed down the east side of the North Col, turned sharply to the north, and joined the main Rongbuk Glacier. As noted, Mallory's Glacier was the East Rongbuk Glacier. This probably all sounds pretty confusing, which I understand, but in simple terms, it means that the glacier that went up to the North Col was actually easier to access from the expedition's original camp. However, the weather was getting worse, and it was deemed too difficult to move the camp from the Carter Valley back to Rongbuk Glacier. But Mallory and the others wanted to make a try for the North Col, and possibly the summit of Everest. However, the weather was not cooperating. They would wait in camp until the end of August, before finally moving forward. First, they would move to advanced camps that had been previously established, including one at 20,000 feet on the Carter Glacier. They would stay at this advanced camp, waiting for the weather to break. That would finally happen on September 20th. Mallory, Bullock, Morshead, and Wheeler, along with porters carrying their gear, retraced their footsteps up to Lac Pala, the gap that led to the East Rongbuk Glacier, which was their path to the North Col. The higher the expedition went, the worse the weather became. The trek up to the pass would take several days, some of the porters being forced to drop out of the hike. Everyone was, to some degree, suffering from altitude sickness. The next day, a camp was set up at the base of East Rongbuk Glacier, and Bullock, Mallory, and Wheeler, along with three of the strongest porters, began to climb up the steep slope to the North Col. They would reach their destination at 11.30 a.m. From here, Mallory looked up and judged the route up the North Ridge as a feasible way to reach the summit of Everest. The height at the North Col was just over 23,000 feet. Mallory and Bullock determined that the terrain around them was good for setting up a camp, but any thought of doing so, or going any higher, was dismissed. The winds were howling at gale force, and the men were in no shape to go on, nor were they equipped for such a venture. The men would ultimately retreat down the call and rejoin their companions before heading back to the base camp. And with that, the expedition had done what they had intended. They had come to Everest, mapped a route to the mountain, and identified a way to the summit. Those had been the chief goals. But for Mallory, not reaching the summit was a failure. He wrote his wife saying, quote, It is a disappointment, there is no getting over it, that the end should seem so much tamer than I hoped for. He would then add, We have established the way to the summit for anyone who cares to try the highest adventure. End quote. But don't think that George Mallory does not want to be that anyone who tries for the summit. It is a quest that will consume him at times. Anyhow, with the North Call reached, the expedition retreated from Everest and began their journey home. They would return to Darjeeling on October 25th without any mishaps. Mally would head back home, meeting his wife in Marseille along the way. He had been gone for seven months. And thus, that ends the 1921 British Mount Everest Reconnaissance Expedition. It had been, without a doubt, a success. As noted, they had found a way up to the mountain and identified a route to the top. But there was much, much more to the expedition. The surveyors, Morshead and Wheeler, had surveyed more than 12,000 square miles of unknown territory, and Wheeler had made a 600-square-mile photographic survey of the land around Everest. Dr. Wollaston had collected and identified hundreds of plants and animals and birds, and the geologist, Heron, had produced a geological map of an 8,000-square-mile region. Also, there were numerous physical descriptions of the region, including photos. And let's not forget, the team had learned so much. In addition to the routes they had identified, they had located where camps should be established, 
what kind of gear worked and what didn't, that sort of stuff. And another critical bit of knowledge they had learned was that any attempt on the mountain needed to be done earlier in the summer, before the monsoons arrived with the cold wind and snow. All of this was great stuff. The team's leader, Charles Howard Burry, would be awarded the 1922 Founders Gold Medal of the Royal Geographical Society for his leadership of the expedition. But again, for men like George Mallory, there was a sense of failure. He didn't care about surveys and specimens. To him, Everest was a behemoth of a challenge set before him. To conquer it, or at least to try, was his destiny. And with that, we will wrap up part one of George Mallory and the Assault on Everest. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next time, we will tag along with the 1922 British Mount Everest expedition, which will include Mallory, as they make an attempt to reach the summit of the Great Mountain. Thank you again for listening. I wish you and your loved ones good health. I will see you next time. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.